Today, I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Frost. She is an eternal optimist who loves helping nonprofit organizations improve their operations and make life better for their employees and the people they serve. Working with mission-driven social entrepreneurs is a key priority for her because she views social entrepreneurs as a vital force for addressing the world's wicked problems. Sarah is a recent graduate of Antioch University's Graduate School of Leadership and Change. She currently works as the Program Operations Manager for the Life is Good Playmakers, an organization dedicated to harnessing the power of optimism to create healing, life-changing relationships for kids in need. She enjoys getting to be a mom to a joyful and incredible three-year-old and wife to an equally amazing and caring husband. Sarah hopes to expand her research and help organizations bring the benefits of optimism to the world of work. Let's hear from Dr. Sarah Frost. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Dr. Sarah Frost, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself for our audience in whatever way feels relevant to you? Uh, Thanks, Lindsay. It's so great to be here. So uh, I think first and foremost, I'm an optimist, right? I recently published my dissertation, so that makes me a doctor. And I've got an almost three-year-old, so that makes me a mom. And I have a pretty amazing and adorable husband, so I'm a wife too. And as of right now, as we're talking about this, I get to be the program operations manager for an amazing nonprofit organization. And so I'm a lot of things, but I like to think I'm an optimist first. I love that description. That is amazing. And knowing you as I do, I definitely can second that you are an optimist through and through. That is amazing. And we're going to be talking about optimism a lot today. So kind of painting the picture of this big thinking, this big transformative change that we hope to see in the world. Um, I often use Dr. Bettina Love's idea of freedom dreaming, which she describes as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. What is the big dream that you hold for either the field of education or workspaces more broadly? Um, So I, I mean, I like to think about both spaces. So for education, I've always dreamed that we can get to a point where every kid every kid on the planet gets access to quality education and they get the support they need to be successful. Uh, And I think there are a lot of ways we can go about accomplishing this. And one of them is to make sure that we have a, every classroom, every kid has, you know, a playmaker in it. They have someone who helps build life-changing relationships with them um, and they, they help them shine. And I think, you know, playmakers are optimists. So that is, um, it's like one way we can address inequality in education is just allowing our teachers and educators to shine in a way that they can help support kids. And then for work, I think workspaces and organizational leaders have a responsibility to create a culture of optimism. 
um, you know, it's both beneficial for the bottom line because optimists are more productive, they're more engaged, and they're generally more successful. And so if we have an environment where people feel like they can be optimistic, you know, both the organization and the employees can benefit. So, you know, my big dream is an optimistic one. That's a beautiful dream. And just to insert, because I've worked with Life is Good Playmakers as well, Playmaker, can you define that term for us and how so, you use it? So a playmaker is an individual or a childcare professional, a teacher. It's any person that makes a big life-changing difference in the life of a kid. Um, and, you know, it could be a teacher, it could be a, a coach, it could be, you know, a daycare teacher, you know, a- anyone, a, a therapist anyone that works with kids has the opportunity to be a playmaker, to, to make a difference in the life of a kid. They do that by creating an environment where they feel safe and empowered. They feel connected. They experience joy and, and they're engaged. I love too, that you all at life is good playmakers frame this playmaker importance in the research that says just one person can make a difference. When we look at the number of children who have really high numbers of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences and have experienced all this trauma, like there are really negative things that can come from that, but there's also that real importance of just one person, one playmaker can make a difference. And I love that you shared all the different roles that that person could embody, because I think whoever is listening, whether that's a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, like a parent, a caregiver, like that is a definite opportunity to be that playmaker for anyone in our lives. So thank you for sharing that. Um, As we think about kind of achieving that dream that you just shared with us, uh, what mindset shifts are required to get people to really buy into this idea of optimism and being a playmaker? I think um, the biggest thing is that we, oh gosh, my, I got a little I got a little flustered, but I think (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) I think one of the things that would be most helpful is if we just remind ourselves to take a step back and reframe, right? We, you know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier before we all got started about kind of reframing our thinking. And you said, you said reframe actually a number of times. And, um, and I, I think this is true. I find myself, I, you know, most of my friends and, and people that I know would say, would agree with me when I say I'm an optimist. But I also have some really dark thinking sometimes, and I have to be reminded to reframe, to like take a step back when I get challenged or when things are hard and look for the good in the world, look for the good in myself and, and others and kind of, you know, see any obstacles that I'm facing as a building block and not a barrier, which is a very privileged thing to say, like, I'm a white lady who is quite comfortable and like, I don't have a lot of barriers in my life. Um, so take that with a grain of salt, of course. Um, but I think for the most part, if you, you know, if you look at successful people in the world, they're really good at reframing. They're really good at being optimistic in challenging situations. You know, um, a friend of mine did a study on social entrepreneurs, um, which are basically business people out to change the world. And in his study, he found that like every single one of them um, 
had this like sense of novel positivity and, and novel positivity was kind of like the foundation of where I got my, you know, idea for my study. Um, but he, you know, each one of these uh, social entrepreneurs, they face really challenging setbacks. And when they talked about them, they didn't talk about them like this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. It was almost like it was the best thing that happened to them or, or they found ways to be positive about these things. And I think that's, you know, that's a really important part of being an optimist and of, of really creating a world where optimists and optimism can exist um, is, you know, practicing that reframe. We, we should question and get curious and think about how we can turn I can't into I can. I really love all those things that you were just talking about. And I, and it made me think about, I think the optimism that you are sharing isn't one of like toxic positivity or, or something like that. So I do hear that phrase a lot more recently in organizations and leaderships. Do you want to distinguish kind of the optimism you're talking about from that idea of just like everything is perfect all the time? Yes, I do. So, um, right. That's, that is like the big thing. So when the definition of optimism that I'm using is the ability to see, feel, and focus on the good in yourself and others and in the world around you, regardless of the circumstances. And so that that last bit is, I think is the most important part because it reminds you like, you're not supposed to overlook the challenges. You need to see them and really see them so that you can figure out ways to make it better, right? Like, how do I turn this, you know, this rejection letter into an acceptance letter somewhere else? How do I learn from, you know, these big mistakes I made, or, you know, how do I get to yes, you know, when it's appropriate and there's, you know, um, but like, I think that's the biggest part of this is like, you know, the, the playmakers definition is the definition of optimism I use. And that's, like I said, the ability to see, feel, and focus on the good in yourself and others and in the world around you, regardless of the circumstances. And, you know, I, I think what, sets it apart from toxic positivity or blind optimism, which is also very dangerous, is that ability to recognize the obstacles. That's such a helpful distinguishing point, I think, for people who are like optimism. I, I love that you clarify that in your research and your work, and, and thank you for doing that here too. Um, as we think about how to put that into action, I know many teachers and many leaders have had to put that into action this year and many families and caretakers, right? We think about how COVID has just disrupted childcare and we were talking about that before too, right? Yeah. That has been a struggle um, for a lot of caretakers and families and educators. And so recognizing those challenges, being able to name them is, is critically important, but having that optimism as you defined it is also important. So when we think about how we actually put that into practice, uh, what brave actions or what steps can people take um, in their schools, in their workplaces to really make this come to life? I mean, I think, oh, I think um, I am pausing here. Yeah, no I, problem. <laughs> as I pull my words together. So I think there's a lot of like brave actions we can take, right? I, you know, and I also know that this is a, 
I mean, this is a podcast for anyone, but I know that you often have a lot of like you're you have a focus on education. And um, although I'm not, you know, not currently a teacher, I, you know, I have been an educator and I really deeply care about schools and education. And I know that teachers and educators have a lot of responsibilities. But one of those responsibilities is to create a safe environment for kids to learn and grow. And I think that's hard work and you have to be brave to do it. But I think that it is a brave action to, to create an environment where kids feel safe. They feel empowered, connected. They feel joyful and engaged. You know, it's hard work. It's not easy. It's not always easy to do, um, but it is important, right? Cause you're going to, kids are more successful when they're able to feel safe, you know? And a lot of kids come to school with a lot of challenges, right? Then, um, and so, I think <laughs> that was great. And I and I think what it made me think of too is, and this will connect, I think, to our next question that kind of goes into your research that teachers need that too, right? Like educators and staff members who work in these educational spaces also need that safety, that belonging, that connection. And so I love that you have researched optimism in organizations. So if a leader is listening, kind of thinking about how they do that for their staff members as well, do you mind just summarizing a little bit, like what you learned from the study that you just finished? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, going back, so, um, you know, I think everyone benefits from being and feeling safe and empowered and joyful and connected. And, you know, I found that, um, an optimistic environment is one that where people experiences empowered connection, um, or cooperative interaction with others that promotes a sense of safety, confidence, and confidence that allows people to take risks and to try new things. Um, they thrive in an environment when they have clear expectations, when they share values with their coworkers and with their organization, and when they feel safe enough to take risks. Um, you know, they like to feel um, supported by other people, and that helps them to be more creative and more productive and more innovative. And I think you know, organizational leaders have a responsibility to create an environment where people feel safe and good and, you know, allows them to be more creative. If I'm feeling at risk, I feel like I'm going to be judged or I can't make a decision um, because it's just constantly going to be questioned because I'm not, like, I don't feel a sense of trust and safety. I'm not going to do my best work. So if I have a good relationship with my boss um, or if, you know, the, or the organizational leaders. And I feel like I can, I can make mistakes without feeling like it's going to be the end of the world. I'm going to take bigger risks and bigger risks often, not always lead to bigger rewards. So I think, uh, you know, as leaders are thinking about the workplace, I, they really should be, you know, creating an environment where people feel like they can, you know, do their best work and feel connected to others and supported. That makes so much sense. As I hear from teachers, that is exactly what they're saying that they're missing this year, but there's, there's all the pressure. There's all the challenge. 
that folks have been facing in their workplaces and at home, right. In their families. And the, that empowered connection piece that you mentioned, I think is really huge. And also the ability to take the informed risks without having that fear of, you know, whether it's accountability for teachers or all these different things that we have in place in traditional educational structures, there is often fear in many workplaces, I think, in terms of evaluating progress and how people are doing um, to be able to not only keep their jobs, but to, you know, not, what do I want to say? (laughs) (laughs) To be able to come to work every day and feel like, they are at their best and they're able to generate joy and safety and all the things for students as well. Like that has to be created for the teachers too. Yeah. Well, there was uh, so the CEO of WeWork recently made a big statement about how work from home people aren't as productive, like they're, you know, they're less engaged than the average employee. And I am so, I'm, you know, which is an interesting statement because this year people have been more productive than ever before. And I think it's because they've had that opportunity. Like we've had to navigate a world where, you know, parents are working home with their kids. So they're working bizarre hours or like, you know, you know, and their bosses are trusting them to get the job done. And, and the statement from the guy at WeWork was, you know, essentially being like, work from home staff are less engaged, you know, we, we need, we, we need to open up offices and get back to space. I mean, it's obviously like a business driven statement, but like, we know we can look at this last year and, and see like people were productive at home, working the hours that made sense to them. And businesses have benefited from this. And as we go back to Um, work and as we open up the world again I think it's really important for organizational leaders you know it's a little bit more difficult to do this in a school setting but you know for for organizations that can do it I think we need to be more trusting of our employees to get the job done in a way that makes sense for them you know and I think it's going to be interesting as we see the world reopen and I'm saying this in you know May um (laughs) so the world could be open hello future sarah um but uh but yeah i think i think an organization that allows their people to work from home and work remotely and get the job done at their hours is an organization that supports an environment of empowered connection and i think you know organizational leaders and principals and administrators need to trust that they hire people to do the job, right? And that they'll get the job done and they'll get the job done well. And, you know, I don't think it benefits anyone to be breathing down someone's someone's neck all the time. Yeah, such an important recommendation for leaders. And I think it specifically resonates too with teachers because there's this, I think push that I'm trying to make for personalized PD and, you know, experimental risk-taking in, in your classes and trying to do things that particularly in the time of COVID, right. We are trying to recoup what people are calling 
learning loss, which that's a whole other podcast, but I think (laughs) there's so much that we're trying to ask people to do in workspaces now that they maybe didn't have to do before, or the pressures are really unique. And so we have to have those spaces um, and that optimistic mindset to be able to embrace the challenge, to learn from it, to, to be able to see that there's a possible. And I'm curious to know too, you conducted research during COVID, right? Like this was, yes. <laughs> this was probably a very interesting challenge. And so I'm curious to know what you found in your research that either was surprising or just what you found generally. Um, because I think that is really just an interesting context to be working in. Yeah. So I think, um, that there were a lot of surprising things, but COVID, you know, really did present a, a big challenge my study was going to be completely different. It was, you know, I was looking to research uh, a training program on organizational optimism and optimistic leadership and, you know, analyze that study after like, or analyze that program and evaluate it. But COVID wasn't allowing for in-person training and, you know, it's, you know, getting easier to create online trainings, but, you know, it's a, a lot of, rejiggering and reframing. Um, and so I had to, had to figure out a way to, to study, you know, get to the base of what I wanted to, to know about. Um, and so I, I had to completely change what I was doing and how I was doing it. So that was one thing, but I think, um, I think one of the most interesting things from my study, especially that it took place during COVID was that people weren't particularly like pessimistic, right? I really expected that levels of optimism would be a lot lower. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't have a a before and after uh, COVID study. Um, But I I was surprised that optimism levels were as high as they were. I was expecting like really dismal um, levels. And I, in my training, I piloted um, this these three scales that I made with a, um, an organization, like a 20 person office staff of an organization and they had really high levels and I was just of optimism. And I was just really surprised that, you know, anyone would be optimistic during this time. I mean, I knew I experienced optimism, but I always do. So it was, uh, it was kind of interesting to, to, to see that, you know, in the worst of times, like people do look for the good. That's really encouraging too. That's very exciting that that's what you found. I'm curious too, just as a survey scale developer person myself, what were your three scales that you created? So um, one was redesigned uh, version of the optimism profile for the Life is Good Playmakers. So they, they had an original measure and I validated it. Um, I kind of read it designed some of the items and then I um, validated that with a, my sample. And then the other two was optimistic leadership um, that measures your ability to like look for the good and as a leader. And then the third was organizational optimism, which or the organizational optimizer, which uh, measures your organization's um, readiness to cultivate a culture of optimism. That's so cool. And I, cause I'm just thinking if I am a district or school leader listening to this, I might think, ooh, I want to measure optimism and those different scale topics for my school or district. What can they do? 
yeah, so they could reach out to me um, and I would be happy to, to talk to people about optimism at work, in their life, at their school, um, or connect them to the playmakers who also are doing this work, you know, with schools, um, you know, training thousands of professionals each year to create an environment where kids feel good and are doing well. Awesome. Is there anything else on your research you wanted to talk about or did I miss anything? Um, I think that if I, like, I would like to say as we, you know, reopen society and as people, you know, we experienced a very challenging year and I mean, no matter if you believed in COVID or didn't, which COVID is very real, um, <laughs> but like it, it, whoever you were, most people had some kind of challenge last year, lots of people more than others. And I think that one of the most important things that we talked about last year was self-care. And I think the best way to take care of others is to make sure you're taking care of you too. And I know, you know, people that work with kids and educators are not always great at it. We're just not. I've worked with kids for many years. I, you know, stepped out of the classroom and the, the direct with kids space, but I know when I was working with kids and I know my colleagues are just really terrible at taking care of ourselves. And so I'm reminding you, you can't give what you don't have. So you have to make sure you're filling your own cup. Make sure you're taking care of you. And, you know, if you want to specifically like increase your ability to be optimistic and practice optimism, you've got to practice, right? So Charlie Parker used to say, if you don't live it, it won't come out your horn. So if you want to be an optimist, you've got to practice optimism. If you want to be a really good caretaker of other, of other people, you've got to practice self-care. So make sure you're taking care of yourself um, and make sure you're trying to see the good in yourself and others and in the world around you. And regardless of the circumstances. And I love that that's something that people can go ahead and start doing right after the episode, right? This is something that you can immediately ask yourself, you know, how am I taking care of myself today, this week? And recognize when that cup is not full to be able to go fill it up, right? Yeah. And I I think as as we all kind of are, are learning and growing on this journey of life and professionalism and all the things, I know that you are a lifelong learner as we all are. Uh, what is something that you've been learning about lately that you may want to share with folks? Um, so I, uh, anytime I get the opportunity to talk about the four day week, uh, I want to do it. So it's this idea that you can do hundred percent of your work in 80% of the time for a hundred percent of the pay. Um, and this, it comes out from Andrew Barnes, who is this like CEO, amazing guy and CEO in Australia. And he's done some research and he's actually like, has a mission to, to uh, build the for like a workforce that is a four day week. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest thing is like, that's related to my work is that idea of, you know, empowered connection of trusting employees and entrusting people to do their job. Um, because he trusts that you're going to do your job. And he's in you know, in a shorter amount of time and he's going to pay you the same amount. So, um, there's that. 
I love that idea so much. I have heard about the four day work week and, and things like this. And Greg McEwen has an episode, I think on his podcast called what's essential, where he interviews a leader of an organization who recently transitioned. And what was that like? And one of the things he was saying is one of the critical questions they had to ask as a, as a whole staff, as an organization, but also each individual had to ask is like, what is truly essential? And I would also frame that around like some of the things that you were talking about. Like, I think empowered connection is essential. I think optimism and joy are essential. And so how can we look through those lenses that you provided us today to think about what can go and be taken off of the plates of teachers and staff members and just working people and, and people in their personal lives too. And what has to stay or what could even be made, what could we even make more space for on our plates, like joy and empowered connection, all these things. Because I think that's like the hard thing people are trying to do is like making the shift, but cramming more in as opposed to removing some things and rethinking and reimagining what it could be like to just work four days. And, and that will take some negotiation, but I think ultimately we end up in a better place. So I don't know if you have any other thoughts on this. Cause I could talk about this all day, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, when you like, there's a bunch of research on the four, on the four day week or like, so there, and there's different ways that you can do it. So you could do like, some people do like a 30 hour work week instead or a 32 hour work week. Um, and the four day week is specifically not for, for not four 10 hour days. It is like, you know, eight hour days. Um, but the research out there shows that people, when they work in this environment, they feel better, they take less sick time, they stay longer, you know, all of the same, you know, many of the same benefits that you get from like an optimistic uh, workplace. And I think, you know, I'm wondering like, Maybe Andrew Barnes, if you're out there and you want to do some research on like, uh, you know, optimism and empowered connection in the workplace, you know, I wonder if these places that are doing four day weeks, if they're experiencing more of that because people feel supported and they feel like they can be trusted to do the job. One of the things that the guy was saying on Greg McEwen's podcast was that they had a fear that people would stop working collaboratively and, and in the team structures that they had, and they were like, oh, well, if everyone has less time, they're going to be very siloed and keep to themselves. And we want to still value the team time and work time. And I think that speaks to that lens or, you know, connection that you're talking about. Like these things are related, the empowered connection, the joy, the, the positivity about their work um, and the optimism they bring to their work is totally linked. And so we can't, ignore those things as we're thinking about what's important to keep in that four days. And I think it also makes me wonder if a person who is teaching a class could structure that because I have taught five day weeks and I've taught four day weeks in terms of the number of times I see students in a week. And I think it's really interesting when you're, when you're asking folks to teach in four lessons, typically they, they are slightly longer if they do four versus five shorter. But I think one of the beauties of it is asking the question of, of what's essential and asking like, how can I do more, have a bigger impact with less time? And one of the things I realized was I want to spend one of the four days each week on connection and on 
fostering that space of psychological safety and belonging and all the things that kids need, like you said, to be successful in educational environments. And I actually increased the time spent on that, even though I had fewer days, because I just realized that's what was essential when I asked myself the question. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and I, um, I had the pleasure of actually talking to Andrew Barnes, um, because I was a nerd and I like reached out to him and was like, tell me about this. Um, and he said that in his company, you know, people were still collaborating. They were still working together when it was called for, um, and they were doing really fantastic work. He said, but they spent less time at the water cooler. They spent less time like milling about in the morning, getting their coffee because they knew that they needed to get the job done. And, you know, your brain, like human brains only have so much capacity every day. So, you know, you, I think it's something like four or six hours a day. I think it's four, but you know, there's probably some geniuses like Lindsay uh, who can do six or eight, but most people, their brain only handles so many hours. And so past that, we're like, we're not useful. Um, and that's why you have people that just like, I mean, you have to take those breaks, right? Like when your day is 10 hours, you probably take more breaks because it's a harder, longer day and you got to keep your brain well. Absolutely. I'm like already excited about you and Andrew Barnes collaborating on this project. I am thinking about so many different angles for this, but I was just thinking, you know, optimistically speaking, I derive my sense of optimism a lot of times from collaborative work, or I like feed off of people's energy when we're tackling the same challenge. And so I love, again, your definition of optimism that's grounded in like, regardless of circumstance. So if I see a challenge, I can talk it out and think through it and then come up with something that by the end of the time together, I actually feel better about the challenge. And I feel better than if there wasn't a challenge. Cause I now feel empowered to be able to tackle it and, you know, do something really cool with it and come up with a really innovative solution that makes me feel like I was at my best. So I, oh my gosh, there's so much potential in that research. So as we wrap up, I'm going to let you go on time. <laughs> As we wrap up, I am sure people are really curious to know more about your research, more about optimism. So where can listeners learn more about you, connect with you? So I have a website uh, that will hopefully be more robust by the time this is published. Um, it's optimismisnowhere.com, www.optimismisnowhere.com. Uh, and if you wanted to reach out to the Playmakers or learn more about the Playmakers work, uh, www.ligplaymakers.org. You can email them at info at ligplaymakers.org. You can info, uh, you can email me at drsarahfrost at gmail.com. Frost, no H at gmail.com. That is great. I'm glad you provided that email and we will link to those things in the show notes because people should totally reach out to Sarah about surveys regarding optimism. I think this is some really cool potential for a school Sarah collab. Thank Dr. So Sarah Fraz, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay Lyons. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Lyons or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.